2: Join me on the dark side of sports by listening to Playing Dirty Sports Scandals on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Kaboom!
1: If you thought four
2: hours a day, 1,200 minutes a week was enough, think again. He's the last remnants of the old republic. A sole bastion of fairness. He treats crackheads in the ghetto gutter the same as the rich pill poppers in the penthouse. Wow! The clearinghouse of hot takes break free for something special. The 5th Hour with Ben Maller starts right now.
3: That it is, the 5th Hour with Ben Maller back at it again. A spin-off of the Overnight Show. We are so happy you have found us. We are in the air everywhere. The vast power of iHeart, the global reach of podcasting as we are together again. It is the weekend and we are back at it. Now, this is an interview podcast, and there's a couple of things you need to know about this. Uh, you are giving a, you're being given a gift here because this weekend, why is this weekend like most other weekends? Because David Gascon is not here. So it's, you just stuck with me on this Friday podcast. Now, on Saturday and Sunday, I'll have my trusty sidekick, not Gascon, somebody who's actually good uh, in here. But this particular podcast, it's all about me and the interview and all that stuff. So we'll uh, welcome in our a friend, a broadcasting friend here in a minute. But a couple of things to take care of. If you have not liked this podcast, please do that. That helps us out. I know it seems ridiculous. It's a pain in the tuchus. I understand that, but five stars. If you have some time to write a review, I know you got to come up with a name and all that. That helps us out as well. Positive reviews really don't need negative reviews. Positive helps us out. Uh, and then Cameo.com. If you're on uh, you know the internet and, and which obviously you obviously are, you listen to a podcast. But if you if you're a big fan of the show, if you have a relative that's a fan of the show, and you you want a video monologue, a Maller monologue just for you, uh, we can do that on Cameo. It's not free, but it's not very much there on Cameo.com, and obviously all of the social media channels, Ben Maller on Twitter. We use that a lot during the weekday radio show on the overnight Instagram, Ben Maller on Fox, and the Facebook page, which is Ben Maller Show. So I am very excited. I admit it's one of my guilty pleasures. I love talking to broadcasters, especially people that influenced me, that I watched and listened to in my younger days and uh, we have pulled out of uh, the ethos mel proctor now if you're from the washington dc area if you're from baltimore chances are you are well aware of mel proctor because for years he was the play-by-play voice of the washington bullets that's right they used to be the bullets and the baltimore orioles And I most associate Mel with the Orioles. I actually was around him a bit a few years ago. I guess it's been a long time now. But he was the radio guy for the Clippers for several years. And uh, that's where I got to know Mel a little bit. And I had lost track of him. I was like, well, I wonder what Mel Proctor's up to. And uh, for those that have not seen his work, if you're uh, younger, you can actually find some old Oriole games on YouTube. And uh, very entertaining, fun broadcaster, uh, did everything, did network, uh, play-by-play, did NF uh, for basketball, did play-by-play, boxing, uh, football. He was all over the place. So let's welcome in now Mel Proctor joining us here on the fifth hour with Ben Maller. And Mel, thank you. For doing this. So, I guess I want to talk about you, make this all about you, at least most of it. So, how old were you, Mel, when you realized you wanted to be a broadcaster?
4: Well, when I was growing up, I, it was the last thing that I thought of. I wanted to be a Major League Baseball player and uh, was good enough to play in high school and college, but had a little trouble hitting the curveball. So, when I graduated from college, uh, I had no idea what I wanted to do. I took a real job in Denver for about six months, and uh, there was a football player who just retired from the Denver Broncos named Lionel Taylor. And he worked at this company, CA Nordgren. He was, you know, he kissed babies and shook hands and stuff. And uh, I got to know him, and we both admitted that we missed being in sports and had to get back and he showed up one day and said I'd like you to meet the new wide receiver coach for Los Angeles Rams and he left for that job and I thought well I gotta get out of here somehow, coat and tie 7.30 in the morning at work two coffee breaks a day no thank you I can't do this so uh, Steve Sable of uh, NFL Films had gone to Colorado College where I went to school Uh, I didn't know Steve but he was several years ahead of me and some of my Fraternity Brothers knew Steve. So I started writing letters to his father, Ed Sable, uh, about a job. And they said, out. Oh, there's nothing there. and So I, I just kept sending stuff anyway, ideas for shows and that kind of thing. And I happened to call one time, talk to a friend of mine who worked there, and I said, i got to come back there for a wedding. Would it be worth stopping by in Philadelphia to see NFL films? And he goes, yeah, your timing may be perfect. So I went back, uh, talked to Ed Sable, and he hired me. I spent three and a half years at NFL Films as a writer-producer, still having no thoughts of being a broadcaster, but I got to know a lot of the guys who came in to narrate films, like Pat Summerall and Charlie Jones and Tom Brookshire, those guys, and I heard them talking about the games they'd done that day, and I thought, you know, I would really rather be out of the game somewhere than in a dark editing room or writing a script. So I, I conned a local radio station into letting me do some high school football. Uh, I was a color man at first, and then one day the play-by-play guy called and said, Mel, I can't do the game. I, I'm sick. going to have to do play-by-play. And I can still to this day remember it. It was the Upper perky Indians in, <laughs> in Pennsylvania against somebody. That was the first game I did, and I said, God, I could do this for a living. So uh, I went from there to doing high school again for a, for a team for a year or so and sold all the advertising, did everything. And then, uh, to make a long story short, I guess, I went to Hawaii on vacation and fell in love with the place. And uh, I'd written a letter there to a the radio station but never got an answer. So I called the guy, Earl McDaniel, who was general manager of KGMP. And he said, come on over, and we got together for lunch, and he liked me, and uh, he hired me, and so I I left for Hawaii, where I spent five years, and that's where I really got all my experience. So, to answer your question, I never really thought about being a broadcaster until after I got out of college, and the real world kind of hit me.
3: Yeah, well, it certainly beats having having a a regular job. I I didn't even realize you had worked at NFL Films, and I knew you had done all the different play-by-play stuff, but... I loved, uh, you know, growing up, it influenced me as a sports fan, the, the stuff that NFL films turned out. And like a lot of guys around my age, we had, before high school football games, to, to fire up the team, they would put in an NFL films, you know, season in review <laughs> documentary. And, 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 yeah. and, and it was an amazing thing that, you know, and you, and you worked there, you were part of it. I, they would make the most mundane, boring team that was, you know, like a typical you know, six and ten, five and eleven. But they would make them seem like gladiators in the uh, in the NFL films. What was it like behind the scenes there in those days, putting those videos together?
4: Oh, it was a, it was a great place to work. They they you, basically you didn't have hours. You just showed up and worked when you wanted to on your films, as long as you got the work done. You could work from midnight to eight in the morning or anytime you wanted, really, so it was perfect, and uh, it just lets you do your own thing, and um, I got to work, you know, I worked with John Fasenda, the great voice of God, who narrated those films, you know, yeah, uh, yeah, Yeah. Colesbury, and Green Bay, and, uh, you know, (laughs) (laughs) I can't do him, but, uh, it was was funny, all all these announcers would come in to narrate the various films, so I got to know them, and, um, some of them were NBA broadcasters who would come into town, and I talked them into letting me be their stat man. So I'd go out to the games with them, like Jack Brickhouse of the Chicago Bulls and uh, people like that, Van Miller of the Buffalo Bills and, or uh, Buffalo Braves. Um, Marty Greckman was a big influence, a guy from New York who was well-known. Uh, so I got to know all these guys, these, these broadcasters, top-of-the-line broadcasters. And I thought... God, this is this is really what I wanted to do. So I just I was in a good spot to to learn from some of the best, and uh, it was a, it was a great place to work. It was, the toughest decision I ever had to make was sitting on the back steps at NFL Films, trying to decide whether to stay in this prestigious job in the NFL with great people and creative and fun, and uh, or quit and go full time to a little. 5,000 watt radio station in Chester, Pennsylvania, where I could broadcast sports full-time. And uh, I took the leap, and it was very difficult at
2: time. Be sure to catch live editions of the Ben Maller Show weekdays at 2 a.m. Eastern, 11 p.m. Pacific.
0: There are some things that are too good to keep a secret, like how your Amex Platinum card helps you have the perfect trip. I'd like to check into the Centurion Lounge, or how it seems like you always get those hard-to-snag tables.
2: Join me on the dark side of sports by listening to Playing Dirty Sports Scandals on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
3: How hard was it, you know, Mel, when you you find you networked, obviously you worked at NFL Films and you met all these people, but then and to do stats, to go from the stat guy and then you went out to Hawaii and then but to get that first big league play-by-play opportunity, how how, how did that work back in those days as opposed to what's going on in the, you know today?
4: Well, I, I was in Hawaii for five years and, and loved it, and married a girl from there from Maui, and you know, I was pretty sure that I was probably going to stay there, but I wanted to do big league sports, and I was doing minor league baseball for the Hawaii Islanders, which were the Padres affiliate, and so I'd go to spring training. I got to know their announcers, Jerry Coleman and Bob Chandler, and those guys. Um, so I started applying for a few jobs. Well, more than a few, actually. I think I I, uh, I applied to the Houston Astros, went in there and interviewed. Uh, the Baltimore Orioles flew me into Oakland for a series because they thought Chuck Thompson was going to retire. Well, he went on for another thirty years that job never opened <laughs> up at that time uh, and then the Angels talked to me I came down to the number two guy there um, I'd applied for some NBA jobs and I was getting close to things but oh, it was, it was so frustrating uh, You know, looking back on it I had no idea how hard it is to advance to that level of broadcasting but one Sunday we were sitting out on there my lanai having a glass of wine my wife and I are wife to be, and phone, the phone rang, and it was WTOP in Washington, D.C. They called and asked me if I wanted to be the play-by-play announcer for the Washington Bullets, who had just won the NBA championship, and I said, sure, yeah, let's go. <laughs> well, about, about two hours later, I get another phone call from Irv Kays, who was general manager of the San Diego uh, Clippers. And he says, we like you to be our player by a play guy on radio. I said, oh, Jesus, I, I don't understand this. Says, after years of trying, suddenly I get two calls within 24 hours offering me NBA jobs. I said, I'd really rather come to San Diego because it's warmer. <laughs> and my wife is from Hawaii. I think it would be an easier adjustment for her. But Herb Caves who became a good friend, said, oh, I'll be honest with you, he said, the Bulls just won a championship. It's a bigger market. There's more exposure. Uh, and to be honest, I'm not sure how long we're going to be in San Diego. So he said, "You ought to take the Bulls job." So that's how I got my first big league job.
3: Wow, that's that's a wild, wild story. Yeah. And 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 then you know. I always associate you, because at my age, I associate you with the Orioles, but you, you were with the, the Bullets you, in that area back and forth. When you uh, run across people that uh, recall your career, do people associate you
4: more with the Orioles or the Washington Bullets or you know, somebody else? I think both, really. Yeah, uh, because I was in the Baltimore-Washington market for almost 20 years, so... Uh, You know, my first year with the Bulls, 78-79, they went to the finals and lost to Seattle after winning the previous year, but that franchise has never made it back to the NBA finals since then. What is that, 42 years ago or something? They've never made it back, and I happen to be part of it, so that was was wonderful and they, and, they have a
3: new, and they have a new name now too they changed their name a number of years ago so there are no no more bullets anymore they're, no, they're, yeah, yeah so. but I was, I was
4: there when they had great teams with wes unseld and elvin hayes and bobby dandridge and dick motto was the coach and it was a great time to be there and then of course i was for the orioles and and got to see most of cal ripkin's career and they had some great teams there i did that for 14 years um, and then came to uh, the cable network I worked for, Home Team Sports, was being sold and everything was up in the air, so I didn't know what I was going to do. But Lurie Aquino who had run the Orioles, was president of San Diego Padres. And they offered me a job doing their TV games. And I'd always wanted to live here. So I said, let's go. So we headed to San Diego, uh, thinking I'd be at Padres the pod race forever it lasted five years then Larry got pushed out by the owner John Moores and everyone that worked for him was out the door too so funny yeah. how life works sometimes but yeah and yes. you you
3: know you so you you've done play by play across I know you did network stuff you did some football play- by play have you done any hockey or is have you, uh, H- you some
4: hockey yeah. is the only thing I've never done I've done boxing for Turner uh, TNT, and TBS, uh, you know, I did the uh, Goodwill Games, boxing. Uh, I've done everything except hockey.
3: Yeah, I and mean, of the sports that you've done, what do you find the easiest and what is the most difficult as a play-by-play guy?
4: Well, I, I think the easiest thing that comes easiest for me for some reason and is the most fun is doing NBA basketball and radio. By myself, which I did for many years. No color man, just me. And it uh, you could get so lost in doing it. It was just a wonderful feeling. And I, I think I had a feel for it because I had played college basketball and kind of sensed the rhythms of the game and developed an unorthodox style of describing things that seemed to, to sit well with people. And uh, I think that was probably the thing I did best. Uh, baseball is the most difficult because, well, it's every day for one thing. So you have, to, you have to be around the batting cage and find out what the latest is. It's easier now with all the information. And, uh, but, you know, in those days you had to really work at it to, to get fresh information because you can't just keep saying the same thing every day about the same players and the same teams. You have to come up with fresh material. And, and baseball games can get, can get slow. I mean, a three-and-a-half-hour game with, you know, I still remember a game in Texas when the Rangers beat the Orioles 26-7. to 7. And It took forever <laughs> for that game to end. And I don't think I've ever drunk so much beer in my life than after that game. In it, 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 it answer your question, yeah, I think baseball was the most difficult. Yeah, and I I, I used to watch
3: you on the satellite doing the Orioles game. You always seemed to have a good time. Even when the Orioles had terrible teams occasionally, you you seemed like you were enjoying yourself. You you were not, uh, you you, you weren't taking it, too seriously, so You had the fun. I felt like you had the, a pretty good balance of having fun and then, you know, calling the game. I, how did you get to that point, Mel? Because a lot of, there's, there's like two types. There's guys that have fun. There's guys that are kind of uh, hardo types that take it way too
4: seriously. So I felt like you had a good time. You were you were having fun doing the games, even when they were terrible. Well, a couple of things happened. Like for many years, I think I I emulated. Different broadcasters, or, or, or tried to steal things from different people, and did things to please the people I work for. And I, at one point, I realized this is not going to work. This business is so fickle that you know you can't please your boss, or you don't know who your boss is going to be next year, or the hell with it. If I can please myself and have some fun, that's all I care about. So that's the attitude I took. I'm just going to go out. I want to have fun. I'm going to try to have as much uh, excitement as I'd experience if I was at a ballpark. And then when I got to, to Baltimore, uh, they had a crazy ex player named John Lowenstein who retired, and he became my partner. And John is about the most awful old character I've ever met in my life. And uh, we just hit it off, and it was like <laughs> it was nonstop laughter after that.
3: Yeah, that's outstanding, and uh, and some of your some of your old games are on YouTube. I don't know if you ever check those out, but every you know, I, I uh, occasionally, especially last year during the pandemic, uh, I'd flip on some of the old games, and they you know the random old like uh, mid '80s Orioles yeah, uh, A's yeah. game will be on, and you'll you'll be doing the playoff. by It's pretty cool to check out some of the stuff. But you, you mentioned uh, getting information. And I think we have a bunch of young guys that listen that want to be the, they want to follow in your footsteps, guys like yourself that have had big careers and play by play and whatnot. But but put in perspective, you know, now I can go on Twitter and social media and have content uh, coming out of my ears and my you know my nose and my eyes miss everywhere but it wasn't like that you had to depend on the newspapers and you had to depend on getting information so so kind of walk me through what it was like when you're preparing and you had to get as you said new information how difficult was it to obtain uh new information on the teams
4: well that's a good question it was it was difficult i used to carry around like a huge, well, just scrapbook with, filled with newspaper clippings and stories taken out of magazines and uh, about different players and teams and I was constantly updating that looking for stuff and books and wherever I could find it. It was all in print then, but it wasn't on the internet. It was no internet as far as I know. And uh, So that's where I had most of the stuff And Some of my broadcast partners used to laugh at me like the late Mike Flanagan, Baltimore, said, "I can't believe you carry all this stuff around, <laughs> like <laughs> this big book full of clippings and stuff that I would refer to from time to time, and you know pull out a nugget and talk about that." Then I I just spent a lot of time too around the batting cage in the clubhouse, just you know getting to know the players and uh, the manager and so forth, and just just working on it. But I always loved the research into things for some reason which I think is what led me into writing some books be sure to catch
2: live editions of the Ben Maller show weekdays at 2 a.m. Eastern 11
0: p.m. Pacific there are some things that are too good to keep a secret like how your Amex platinum card helps you have the perfect trip I'd like to check into the Centurion lounge or how it seems like you always get those hard to snag tables Ooh, yum! and how you get the most out of select can't miss events
2: Join me on the dark side of sports by listening to Playing Dirty Sports Scandals on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
3: Yeah, that's right. In fact, I wanted to talk about that because uh, for those that don't know, Mel, uh, long career as a play-by-play guy, but you've you've written several books. The one that, that caught my attention, I'm still in the middle of it, so I have not uh, been able to finish it, but it's a few years old, but love the work. Hate the Business is the headline on this, and it's one of the several books that you've written over the years. That really resonated with me because I have a similar perspective, Mel. I am a little younger, but I love working in sports radio. Some of the politics of it, uh, yeah. uh, the behind, I, I'm not a big fan. Of, so kind of you know, sell me on the book here. Obviously, I'm a fan. I'm a believer in the book. But, but for those that are uh, considering it, why should somebody buy that book?
4: Well, I, I should point out that the book originally came out, I don't know, 10, 12 years ago, but I just recently released an audio book where I narrate the book, and I think it's better than the print work because, you know, my voice is there and the emotion of some of the things that I felt. So that's available now from uh, Audible, Amazon, and iTunes, for those who want to get it for $9.99. But, uh, yeah, I, I just... Uh, what ha- what happened was how this book thing came about was well first book I wrote was a book called the Official Fans Guide to the Fugitive which is about the old fugitive television show of the nineteen sixties which was my all time favorite show uh, and it was one winter when I had some spare time so I and I always wanted to write a book so I said I'm I'm going to research this thing see if I can come up with a book so when we take road trips. Uh, I would try to schedule them with interviewing people who had worked on the show, um, like Barry Morris, who played uh, Lieutenant Gerard. He lived in Toronto when I was up there for a game. I got together with him and um, all these different stars that were on the show. I interviewed a lot of them. and wrote the book and got it published, so that was the first time, but then... What really inspired the book you're talking about was in 2007, uh, I had broadcast for both the Orioles for most of Cal Ripken's career, also for Tony Gwynn's 3,000th hit, last game of his career, which was my last in San Diego. But I went to a bookstore in San Diego, Warwick's, well-known bookstore, while Ripken was signing the book, I went down to see Cal and say hello, and I was talking with John Maroon, who was the PR director for the team, and we figured out that I was the only person, not only in the universe, but, you know, the world or anywhere, to have broadcast for both Ripken and Tony Glenn, and to, to call Ripken's record-setting game when he broke Luke Gehrig's record and Tony Glenn's 3,000th hit. And both of them were going in the Hall of Fame that year, 2007. So I paid my own way back to Cooperstown, and said, I'm just going to experience this. It's a one-in-a-lifetime thing, and I'm going to see if I can write a book about it. So that's how it began. I just kind of went from there and thought, looking back on my career, how much I'd enjoyed it, and what I'd started in the beginning, and just, you know, give a chronological history of what I'd done, and it turned out to be in the book.
3: Yeah, and uh, you were around uh, Ripken and Gwyn. I was around Tony a little bit, uh, and he was like the the coolest star, most you know down to earth star that I recall being around in those days. Because he just seemed to have a really good perspective on on everything. Uh, what was it like being around him with the Padres in those days?
4: Oh, he was the best, uh, one of the best human beings that God ever made. Unfortunately, we lost him too early, and. No, but he was he was so talented, such a wonderful person. Um, one of my favorite Tony Gwynn stories is my son was in high school at the time, and he was playing baseball, and he was in a slump. He wasn't hitting. So Merv Rettenman was the Padres hitting coach, and I said, Merv, my son's having a little trouble with his hitting, but you help him out. He said, sure, bring him in Sunday in the morning before a game, and I'll help him. So I brought my son in, we went down to the batting cages inside the stadium, and Tony Gwynn was already there. It's about 9 o'clock in the morning, and they had played a late game the night before. And here's Tony working up a sweat in the batting cage, swinging away early in the morning when all of his teammates are probably sound asleep. And I remember saying, I said, Tony, what, what are you doing here? And they were playing Seattle that night, so he said... I'm trying to figure out a way to hit Randy Johnson, the big unit. <laughs> well, he was one of the few guys who gave Tony trouble. But that's how dedicated Tony was to his craft, to be there early in the morning after a night game the night before. And uh, that just showed the kind of person he was. And by the way, Merv did help my son get out of a slum. But <laughs> that, was, that always impressed me about Tony.
3: Yeah, and now you were in the with the Orioles. For were you there when they uh, they had that zero twenty one start? Were you there that? Oh year? yeah, yeah, what? yeah. <laughs> what, do you, what do you do as a broadcaster oh. when you're already buried a month into the season? Like, how do you how do you how did you handle that night? Was it nineteen eighty eight? I think was the year when the team. Yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. How. Walk me through what that was
4: like as a broadcaster. Oh God. It's painful to <laughs> think back on it, but they were you know, they were losing in every possible way, it'd be an error here or a hit batsman with a bases loaded or fan interference or you know, I mean anything you could imagine, they just kept losing and losing. And I remember John Lowenstein, my partner, saying to me, he said, You know, the best thing that could happen to this team is they keep losing. Because if they win a game, people are going to stop covering them. But the more they lost, the more the coverage increased. And there were writers and reporters showing up from everywhere, including Japan, I think, to, to <laughs> chronicle this team going 0-21 start this season. <laughs> it was just unreal. And uh, I, I can still remember a, a picture of Billy Ripken. uh leaning on his bat with his forehead on his, the knob of his bat and looking just so sad during that time. Um, but it's amazing what happened. They were 0-21, and they came back after finally winning a game, and Larry Latino was president of the team, and he had been working uh, with Edward Bennett Williams on the team, and uh, the mayor of Baltimore... Uh, on on an agreement to get a new stadium built. So when the team came back into town, they finally won a game to end the losing streak, they made this dramatic announcement about the new stadium, which turned out to be Camden Yards. So they they turned it into an amazing positive. And the next year, in 1989, they came within a few days of winning the American League East.
3: Yeah, so it was, a, it was a great turnaround. And that 88 oil team, for those that are young and don't, I mean, they had Hall of Famer. Uh, Cal Ripken, Eddie Murray was on that oh, team. Oh, yeah. yeah. A, y- a young Kurt Schilling, uh, who was you know, not a Hall yeah. of Famer, but a very good player. Kurt Schilling, uh, like, Brady Anderson. Uh, um, yeah, yeah. And and, and still 0 21 to start the year. But, uh, Mel, uh, just a, a word of advice, though. Somebody breaking in right now, uh, what would you say to a young broadcaster who wants to? As I said earlier, following your footsteps. What advice would you
4: give him? Go out and win twenty games, or win a Heisman Trophy. <laughs> <laughs> that does
3: help. I uh, yeah. You're, I mean, it is it is difficult for a guy without you know professional experience, oh. right? I mean, it's very you know. And I I deal with the same thing in in my you know doing sports radio. It's uh, you know it's a little. A little difficult, but it is also networking, right? I mean, you got to know people, and you did a great thing, as you said, you started at NFL Films, you networked. That's a big yeah. part of it too, right? You got to meet people, and and usually the people you start out with, the people behind the scenes, end up you know moving up, and then they can help you out, right? Yeah, to
4: some degree, but when I got the bullets job, uh, I was working in Hawaii, and they used to have a game called the Rainbow Classic, where they bring in teams from all over the Country to play, and all the NBA general managers would would use this as an excuse to take a trip to Hawaii so they could party for a week. And uh, (laughs) so I, you know, I hung out with these guys and I got to know them. So in the case of the Washington team, Bob Perry was a general manager. When I heard about this opening in Washington, I I called Bob and I said, you know, there's this job. Does it involve play-by-play for the Bullets? And he said, yes do you want to do it and I said hell yes he said alright so he made a call and I had a lot to do with my getting hired
3: absolutely
4: alright and again promote
3: the promote the book uh, Mel the audio book and uh, and how can people find it and he said only 10 bucks right that's a good that's a deal they love yes. the work uh, love the work hate the business is the name of it and again where can they find it Mel uh,
4: it's at audible amazon or itunes
3: all right, so wherever you get your audio books your audio content there. and, and or where
4: do you, you can go to www.audible.com or All right, Amazon, cool. obviously. Yeah, um, yeah. And, and, and what do you... What,
3: what have you been up to? Really? I mean, I haven't talked to you in a while. You were, you, for those, I, I, I was around you, with, you were doing the Clippers. You actually ended up doing the L.A. Clippers. You did some, some work with the Clips, uh, and I was around you a little bit then. But what, what have you been up to recently? You're living in San Diego, right? You're enjoying life. It's a beautiful place to live, wonderful city, the whole thing. Oh, yeah.
4: Uh, yeah, I, I did the Clippers for three years. And I probably would have stayed forever, but they weren't paying me much. And so uh, I had a chance to go to Washington to be the first television voice of the Washington Nationals. But it was only a one-year deal because the team had no ownership. They were being run by Major League Baseball. So they could only offer a one-year contract. And uh, looking back on it, it was a mistake. But I took the job and went there and had a ball working with Ron Darling went on to have a great career as a good friend, but uh, that's where things pretty much ended, and so I just, you know, came back here. I wrote another book about Gene Mock, former Major League Manager, and, you know, did a little of this, little of that, did some college games for the University of Hawaii and uh, a few other things, but basically I'm just kicked back now and spending time with my dogs (laughs) And trying to think of another book to write There you go You gotta
3: come up with another book And when you come up with the book, Mel We're gonna have you back We're gonna sell the book, Mel
4: We're gonna move product for you, Mel Is what we're gonna do, okay? All right. well don't forget We got official fans guide to the fugitive I love the work, but I hate the business And the little general A baseball life of Gene Mark Which is very interesting
3: Awesome. Hey, Mel, thanks thanks for your time. I appreciate it, and uh, we'll catch up again soon. Thank you. Ben, anytime. It's been a pleasure.
4: Thank you.
1: At Bed 365 we don't do ordinary. We believe that every sport should be epic. Every home run, every hit, every inning, every play. From the moments that are legendary to the ones that fly under the radar. Whether it's a walk-off grand slam or a base hit to center field.